Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we're talking about some historical environmental bills passing through uh, through the good old U.S. government as a bill. I'm excited about this to talk about that and more. How's it going, Nick? It's going good, George. How are you? Doing all right today. And finally, some, I, I just didn't expect the, the legislation to go through. And uh, maybe you can explain what the Inf- Inflation Reduction Act, because it doesn't have environment in it, actually did. Yeah, George. No, that's a great point. So I'll give a little bit of background on this bill. Um, so this is kind of the the reiteration of President Joe Biden's Build Back Better deal bill, rather, that had kind of languished in legislative purgatory. But as it turns out, in this kind of blockbuster drama, um, Democrats had the votes for this new Inflation Reduction Act bill, um, which included support from much more moderate Democrats, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. So the new legislation is actually the largest investment in clean energy of any country in history, including hundreds of billions of dollars for clean energy programs, environmental justice initiatives, and other non-climate provisions. So this is historic for environmental justice and frontline communities that have been all ignored, overlooked, and overfunded. Um, That's a quote according to Harold Mitchell Mitchell of the South Carolina Environmental Group Regenesis Institute. Um, Other nonprofits like the World Wildlife Foundation has said that the new act gets to the root cause of climate change which is carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels and offers significant resources addressing those emissions in American businesses on our roads and in our communities. Um, So, George, this is a huge legislative win, not only for Democrats and for America, but for the global fight against climate change. There are quite literally hundreds of billions of dollars going to clean energy. And the takeaway is that our goal was for, to reduce um, carbon output by 50% by 2030. And this gets us somewhere around 38 to 42% of the way there, which is extremely significant. Some activists might be a little bit concerned about there's a couple of carrots to like some extra drilling to get some more uh, moderate members on board with this bill. But even so, the net benefit to the environment is quite substantial. And one of the most important, I think, legislative achievements of the past couple of years. But George, what are your thoughts on this? There's so much in here. I'm still trying to, frankly, like parse out what it looks like. And in a bill this size, you know, it's hard to say if every single dollar goes to the exact target. However, what I hope happens is that nonprofits in the environmental justice spheres are able to access to more funds and have bigger plans that work with this bill and can really track down like where that money is going and whether or not they um they are a part of that, how their communities get a part of that. Because, you know, now now the the sort of 
sausage gets made after the fact of how how this money gets deployed. And that's where the the details actually matter because we need the carbon. Remember the carbon in the <laughs> the environment to go down. So, you know, step one done, certainly uh, in, increasing the, the dollars out there for this. And was this like a budgetary bill, which is why they were able to pass so much inside of it? This was like the like shove everything inside of a budgetary bill because then we can get the, uh, you know, the the thinner vote to pass. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So the Senate, at least according to current rules, needs 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. So most legislation, immigration, criminal justice reform, whatever it may be, requires 60 votes. But because this bill is technically directly affecting the federal budget, uh, it goes through a process what's called uh, reconciliation which means that you only need a simple majority, 50 plus in the case of the current Senate, a tiebreaker, that is the vice president, to sign off on this bill. So it's actually kind of cool. You have a parliamentarian that goes through every single line of this 700-page bill, makes sure everything in there is only affecting the budget. You can think of that as taxes and spending and what have you, um, and then gives the bill a score, and then it's okayed as a piece of legislation you can pass through this very simple 51, say, vote majority. Um, so that's how the bill kind of came to be. But yeah, I am just lucky that I didn't have for the past year and a half uh, passing this bill hanging over my shoulders. Uh, certainly an achievement and no less a political achievement that I'm sure took a lot of work. Yeah. And... Yeah, it's interesting to cover, and then we'll we'll pay attention to like what that looks like, their opportunities for, and how for nonprofits to be involved in the the deployment of that. But I think the the folks that know probably already know, but uh, we had to include it because again, historical size, and maybe it triggers other groups to also push for this. But it's you know I think a nod toward how the activism advocacy of nonprofits over time, as well as a lot of other groups, have swayed. Congress and our representatives enough such that something of this size could get passed. This doesn't get passed unless the public cares a whole awful lot. And, you know, I think the the nonprofit sector had a heck of a lot to to do with that. We actually created an article recently, it's in the resources if you check it out, about how much a nonprofit can technically lobby <laughs> and spend on lobbying. Uh, that's for another podcast. But if you're, you're interested in that, uh, we have some expert advice. Well, Advice from experts. We are not ourselves experts to, to take a look at that. All right, Nick, what else we got? All right. So our next story comes from ABC News. Um, and this is about the WHO planning to rename the monkeypox over stigmatization concerns. So the WHO, of course, stands for World Health Organization and says it's holding an open forum to rename the disease monkeypox. After some critics raised concerns, the name could be derogatory or have racist connotations. So according to ABC News, the UN Health Agency um, uh, said it has also renamed two families of the virus using Roman numerals instead of geographic areas to avoid stigmatization. Um, and yeah, I think this is really important, actually, and does an important job of understanding the social and political, ultimately, aspects of public health. 
and understanding that making sure that people have unfettered access to public health information without any kind of harm or persecution or anything like that. Um, and I think that this is uh, definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, we spend a lot of time here at Whole Whale about words, the meaning of words, the stigmatization of words, and have built the inclusivity tool uh, actually to check entire websites for language that that may offend, that may be presented in uh, offensive ways. And I think we have had a front row seat in terms of how the name, the sheer name of a virus can affect people's perception of it. And if it affects perception, it affects the way that people will take it seriously, which in turn impacts transmission rates. It in turn dictates whether or not I think I should get a vaccine or not. And this has happened enough times such that I think, you know, it's time for the WHO to examine. And it seems like they're starting to the naming convention of every single virus, because let's be honest, the, you know, disease to be named later is already spreading, is already in newsprint, is already on the lips and minds of people. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, you can't put it back in the box, so to speak. So I think the WHO uh, dropped the ball on this one pretty, pretty significantly. And uh, in general, you know, sure, they'll rename it and it'll start to be used, but it is, it is very much already out there. The stigma, again, that it only impacts certain audiences is uh, emphasized and harkens back to HIV and the devastating impact that that had in the in the 80s and again the stigmatization uh, and what happened when we think that only a certain uh you know uh you know men seeking men type of behavior is related to the spread of a virus means that like it's going to spread further and the public's not going to take it seriously so this is you know hang this on the who like let's pay attention to how you're how you're naming these vaccines how you're naming these viruses because it will inevitably affect how the public is able to rally an accurate response of it. And so if you treat it with medical attention, medical, you know, designation, like I, I don't love this idea of publicly putting it out there for like, like, let's brand this thing. Like, let's, you know, tell me the chemical composition, name it that. Like, how about that? No, definitely. I think that that's, that's a great point. All right, I could take us into our next story, and this comes from Business Insider, and it's about the Black Girls Code founder who was suing the nonprofit after her ousting. So Black Girls Code's founder, Kimberly Bryant, has filed a lawsuit against the technology nonprofit um, for being improperly ousted, let's say. Um, the lawsuit comes against the board, which had essentially ousted um, Bryant, uh, but alleges that the board essentially orchestrated this ouster as part of uh, a power grab, as you will. And this is kind of a long, complicated, drawn out story. And I don't want to misrepresent the details of what's kind of a, seems like a very tense, uh, legal standoff between Bryant and the, the board. But George, what's your, what's your take on this and, and what should nonprofits take away from this story? I think there's a, you know, a good message to boards out there in general, nonprofit boards. The number one thing the board does as a rule and responsibility is the job of hiring and firing the CEO. 
Like that's, you know, job one of the board. Next is the, the financial stewardship and guidance because they are very much on the hook in terms of that as, as a board. And so if you're going to, to do something as severe as firing a, a CEO, it can't just be on, uh, you know, lightweight allegations of staff saying we were worked too hard. Like, you know, there's uh, deeper work there. I don't know. I don't know the details of this, but clearly a CEO feels like the full story wasn't there. So what is, and again, the reminder to the people on boards of like, what is the process and documentation that you have gone through and evidence that you have to support that? You know, there's also questions of hiding financial information, which, um, you know, you'd have to have, have proof for. I think it's tough in general too, um, overall when, when this happens, because the damage to the overall brand, like that, you know, black girls code, people that search for that search for making a donation, like, are you about to open your wallet for that particular organization now? So there's significant brand damage when, even if they're perfectly no wrongdoing at all on either side, just a misunderstanding. Like the problem is when that gets into a press cycle, it is incredibly damaging. And so you know, the hope is that nonprofits, nonprofit boards and CEOs can manage this, you know, out, outside of legal means and can find a way to, to reconcile, have that conversation. Uh, because this, um, you know, unfortunately, it, it's a situation where I feel like everybody loses and more so in the nonprofit sector where your brand built over years is destroyed in days. And uh, it actually just makes me sort of sad. But as a reminder to organizations listening, like this is why lines of communication need to be open. Boards need to understand their roles and responsibilities and how to go about things and how the rules are different in the, the social impact sector, I believe, than the for-profit world. Because let's just be honest, like Colgate goes through whatever, hypothetically, I'm still going to buy my toothpaste. It's still a product in the world. It's not built on my trust of the CEO and the board being run there. I'm like, oh, you made toothpaste. It's just different for social impact. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair assessment. And we'll continue to keep an eye on this one and let our listeners in on any new developments. All right, I'll take us into our next story. And this comes from Cranes. And it's about the New York City Council bill to help nonprofits land bidding wars. So I think the idea here is that city-held land that eventually um, gets becomes available for development has overwhelmingly gone to private and corporate developers. And it seems that there is an impetus to uh, help nonprofits, particularly housing nonprofits, um, increase the access into this land as it come, becomes available in New York City. And we talked about housing on this podcast a lot. We're in a, I would say, fair to say housing crisis in America, last of lack of housing, uh, skyrocketing housing prices, both for, for homes and rents. Um, and it seems that this is potentially a step in the right direction um, to, to help people uh, or help nonprofits help people uh, access housing. Yeah, this should come as no surprise. Affordable housing. That when we when you mention the word homelessness, people experiencing home, you know, uh, homelessness. The the question is, how do we have enough housing and affordable housing in urban and areas, dense urban areas, and nonprofits simply, you know, can't be expected to compete uh, at that level, and especially if it's public land, right? We're not saying like, oh, for all real estate, do this. We're saying for public land. Capital P public means it was previously taxpayer supported, means that 
I think every city should be paying attention to how those bids go and who is getting them. And I think New York City is an excellent model for this. Um, and, you know, paying attention to how that works. And an example for the types of legislation, hopefully, you know, coming back to our, our lobbying and how you bring attention to uh, your local city when you're working on a larger picture of like what might be possible and how you can say, hey, here is a model that, that might work for us. Um, and looking at the usage of public lands and especially when they are put out the bid and whether or not private companies are simply taking those, putting up, you know, more sort of unaffordable housing, you know, as, as rents increase. Uh, in, in your, in your areas and your cities. Absolutely. All right, George, how about a feel good story? Oh, can't wait. What do we got? All right. This one comes from GeekWire and it's about a nonprofit showing how rigorous data analysis can dramatically curb use homelessness. So an organization in Washington state called Away Home Washington has announced dramatic reductions in the number of people were homeless in the eastern Washington city of Spokane. Um, and it's essentially hoping to eliminate youth homelessness. Um, so it's kind of a tech-driven approach um, that this nonprofit is using um, to decrease homelessness. Um, and very like statistic-driven. Um, and they kind of have a multi-pronged approach to tackling the challenge, as the Geek Wire says. Um, they have these things called anchor communities, which are coalitions of organizations that interact with homeless youth and young people. Um, they have funds and then lots of just data to kind of uh, make this whole kind of coalition efficient. And we, we'd actually talked a couple months ago about um, some similar uh, homeless coalition building among nonprofits in Texas. Um, but it seems that uh, out in Washington, they have... Um, are also looking for ways to build coalitions and use data to decrease homelessness. So cool story. Tech for good. Yeah, this is great. And it's like talking about person level data, which you always have to be careful with because, you know, this is sensitive information and how it's being used. I like the idea of a nonprofit behind that instead of, you know, a, uh, a large tech firm trying to do this. So I think that the trust getting back to there is working. But the, at a person level, you're able to say, hey, we had 82 homeless veterans in this area, how do we decrease it? And you're tracking the outcomes of this like, all right, because we can get caught in a uh, high level policy or process. And in this case, it is the last mile, the last mile, the last person being tracked. And, you know, this type of, of, of model is ultimately what you will need to move from, you know, a statistic, which is 10,000 people experiencing homelessness in this area to no, 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 there's 10 people here. What are we doing? What are we doing for them? Here's Jeff. Talk to me. <laughs> Talk to me about Jeff. And so it sounds like they're able to show these data in a, in a safe way, track them in the right way, and then use them to make changes in, in local areas, uh, which is great. Um, more power to them. You can find uh, that. And what's the name of the organization one more time? The name of the organization is Away Home Washington. Away Home Washington. All right. Hats off. Well done. All right, Nick. Thanks so much for summarizing the news for us. All right. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. 
Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.